Good evening, everyone. It's a real pleasure to welcome you here to Oxford today from colleagues who've come sort of five minutes. Thank you for coming five minutes. To National Trust friends and colleagues, thank you for making this slightly uh, more arduous journey over to see us tonight. It's a real delight to introduce uh, the penultimate lecture in our fantastic, moving, teaching, inspiring lecture series, uh, organised by Alice Perkis in the front row over there. Um, my name's Oliver Cox. I'm Heritage Engagement Fellow here at the university, and it's my role to develop and sustain long-term partnerships with brilliant external heritage organisations to think about how best Oxford's research and expertise can help support uh, our colleagues in their, in their sort of charitable mission. So it's a jolly exciting uh, opportunity for us to think about maybe a slightly different side of heritage today, which is how we support our causes. So I'm delighted that we've got an amazing panel of speakers here tonight. I mean, you know, top, top-notch stuff, uh, which is incredibly exciting. So we have uh, Jackie Jordan, the National Trust Director of Brand and Marketing, Susan Foster, the Trust's Fundraising Director, and from the home team, Lisa Elder, Chief Development Officer at Oxford University. And our panel tonight are going to discuss the ways in which fundraising and branding are fundamental to supporting both the National Trust and Oxford University. So before I call our speakers up, I'm just going to give you their biographies so you know exactly where they're coming from um, and how they have reached such august heights. I start with Jackie Jordan, who's Director of Brands and Marketing at the National Trust. Jackie is part of the executive team and contributes to overall trust strategy and policy leading a directorate of 250 people and accountable for the national strategic vision and direction in relation to brand, marketing and supporter development functions, including visitors, members, donors, volunteers and grant awarding bodies. It's remarkable she's had time to come and join us tonight. Um, responsible for the overall audience insight strategy and for leading the evolution of the National Trust supporter data management, analytical and targeting capabilities. Liesl Elder, Chief De Development Officer from the University of Oxford. Liesl has worked in philanthropy for higher education over the past 20 years, both in the United States and the United Kingdom. In her current role as Director of Development for the University of Oxford, she manages the £3 billion Oxford Thinking Campaign, the largest fundraising campaign in Europe. Her expertise includes major gift fundraising, campaigns, annual funds, alumni relations, marketing, public relations, and corporate events. And in joining um, Jackie and Liesl on the stage after their presentations will be Susan Foster, the fundraising director for the National Trust. And Susan has been a professional fundraiser for over 20 years with extensive experience in raising income from major donors, trusts, and foundations, commercial sponsorship, and through individual giving programmes. Since 2013, Susan has been Director of Fundraising for the National Trust, where the annual fundraised income target is the second highest source of income after membership and represents over 20% of turnover. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that over the course of the evening. So I'm delighted to start off by welcoming Jackie Jordan. Thank you. Thank 
thank you very much. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here this evening, um, or I should say probably this afternoon, given that the sun is still shining. Um, really good to be part of this wonderful series of lectures, um, and also to get the opportunity to share with you some of our work. Um, as you've heard, I'm Jackie Jordan. Um, I often say that um, I think I must have the best marketing job in the country because it is really rare and a really rare privilege actually to work for a brand that is truly forever for everyone. Very few brands can really say that and a brand that adds so much value to people's lives both today and in the future. It's also very rare to manage a brand that is so successful and yet still has so much opportunity to grow in terms of types and levels of support. So my job and the job of my team is to grow support for the very simple reason that the more people support us, the more we can do in terms of the more success we can have in terms of delivering our cause both at our places and beyond. So in the recent past, so we'll go for that one. In the recent past, we focused on giving people some really strong reasons to visit and on making those visits more enjoyable for them. And that's resulted in amazing growth in visitor, visitor numbers and memberships, which has delivered significant financial contribution for our conservation work. We are fast approaching 5 million members, something we didn't expect to achieve until 2020. And an often quoted statistic is that our membership base is larger than the combined membership bases of all the political parties in this country put together. It took us 11 years to move from 3 million to 4 million members, and yet the growth from 4 million to 5 million is likely to come in only four years. So the type of visit that we offer people clearly resonates with them. We have beautiful places which are in their local area, which offers something for everyone through our programming and component development, and is affordable for most. We are a great social day out with family and friends, and so long as you're visiting enough, membership makes complete financial sense. So, that all sounds great, but we want our relationship with people to go further and to achieve more. We have a significant responsibility for the wonderful places in our care, but our most fundamental responsibility is to our cause, to promote the preservation of special places of cultural and natural significance. And the nation's special places will only be protected if people actively contribute to them and we have a fundamental role in facilitating that interest. But for a large number of our supporters, the link between their visit and our conservation purpose is not clear. They don't connect the experiences that they enjoy so much with the work that we do and their role in that. So moving people from enjoying experiences to wanting to help us care for and protect special places remains the challenge but also the opportunity. So ultimately, we want more supporters staying longer and doing more. And we're very clear that in order to get that, we need to focus on getting more people to believe that our cause matters to them personally. And that's a long-term goal and runs across everything that we do. At the moment, 
only just over half of our members, so those people visiting us most frequently, those people closest to us, know that we're a conservation charity. And less than 7% of our members do something else with us alongside having their membership. So buying into our cause is fundamental in growing those deeper levels of support. And we have two clear strategies to get more people to believe that our cause matters to them personally, building our brand and putting our supporters at the heart of what we do. We need people to think and feel differently about their relationship with us. It is about emphasising through everything that we say and do what drives us as an organisation and its importance to people, what you might call our role in the world, whilst also identifying the right area and the right way for you as an individual to engage and contribute, so our role in your life. It is no good for us to get people to think differently about us if they can't find a relevant way to get involved. So personalisation is key. To build our brand, we needed to start by defining what our brand is and could be. So at the centre of our brand is our cause, looking after special places forever for everyone. We then have clear brand, a brand personality of inspiring everyone and four established attributes or benefits which are authentic to us. In research groups, we then assessed how could we develop our brand so it would shift the way that people think about their relationship with us from somewhere to visit to supporting a charity with a cause that matters. And it's important to note that with a brand like ours, this is not about developing something new. That would be totally wrong. But it is about assessing what to dial up and emphasise within our existing brand attributes. And what came out loud and clear is that if we focused more on our attribute of making a difference and made that a more powerful reason why people should support us, we could deliver the perception shift that we're after. We want to be known as an organisation that makes a difference for special places, but more crucially as an organisation that facilitates people making a difference for an important cause. So I love this analogy because it's a great way of reminding us that brands are not just the result and the output of their communications and visual expression, but they are made and sometimes broken by every single interaction that people have with us. Indeed, as this shows, in reality our communications are actually only the tip of the iceberg and people formulate their view of us in a whole lot of other tangible and intangible ways. So we've recognised that, um, and we have multiple streams of work happening that come together to help us build our brand. We're also clear that to deliver our organisational strategy, we need this brand shift, as many of our, the conservation challenges that we face require us to work with and to galvanise others to play a part. So for the brief for today, I'm going to focus on a high-level overview now of our current brand marketing and fundraising activity. So, we know what we want our brand to be, but how do we get there? To evolve our marketing, we've developed a creative proposition, something that the team and our agencies can be inspired by and that we can use to assess whether our marketing is hitting the mark. And that is, 
that people make places and places make people. It's a virtuous circle and both need each other in order to thrive. Now this is not a strapline for our advertising or for our strategy, but it's more a guiding principle for our work so that every marketing story that we tell should bring those two sides together and help us emphasise that if it wasn't for the support of people, our visitors, our members, our donors, our staff and volunteers, our work to look after special places for people to enjoy would not be possible. So their contribution has much more meaning. So we're starting um, by communicating the virtuous circle between the experiences our visitors enjoy and how that enables our conservation work to allow others now and for years to come to continue to enjoy those special places. To provide some impetus to this, we launched our TV advertising in September 2016, which I hope you've all seen. Um, it's entitled Behind the Scenes. And I thought it would be a good idea if I play that for you now, because hopefully it will help to bring to life the creative proposition that I've been explaining. Excuse me. What sort of world do we want to live in? can provide um, the profile for our communications, but we've looked to reinforce the same message through all of our other main marketing touch points. So you get the message on TV, in our regional marketing, on our website and emails, at our properties, on our membership cards, and even on your cup of coffee. All of that working together to reinforce that your day out and monetary support is helping to fund our conservation work <laughs> which is preserving special places. I particularly like the chalkboard from Chalcott in Warwickshire, telling us, our visitors that we need to sell 23,000 scones in order to do some minor repair work. A moment on the lips, a lifetime on our bricks, as they have put it. <laughs> and you'll also note that we're saying thank you a lot which is proving a really great shorthand just for triggering with people and understanding that they're doing something good. Well, as our brand work starts to take hold, we believe that this will give us more opportunity to ask our supporters if they could support us with a donation. If more of our supporters know that our work is only possible with their help, then if we can talk to them about either on property or via our marketing communications, about a conservation project at a place they love, they will be much more likely to want to give. Equally, the more our supporters hear us talking about our fundraising, the more likely they will be to think of us as a cause which helps change the perceptions of our brand. We know that targeting, getting the right ask to the right person at the right time in their relationship with us is critical to the success of our fundraising. It can be a really powerful way of strengthening their relationship with us, if done properly. 
We also know that a small donation can lead to a bigger donation from a gift in will. And legacies are a vital source of money for our conservation work, and particularly for land acquisitions. As this slide shows, legacies make up 66% of our fundraising income, and 60% of our legators are people who formerly have given us a donation. We very much think about our fundraising as part of a lifetime journey with our supporters, which is rooted in a greater understanding of the importance to them personally of our cause. <coughs> well, we also believe that fundraising should be part of our DNA and, there's something, and should be something that everybody feels confident to do. Our first principle is inspiring passion for our cause by talking enthusiastically about what we do and why we do it in all of our interactions with our visitors and our supporters. This, we know, comes naturally for many of our staff and volunteers. We just need to give them the confidence and encouragement to do it. And when it comes to making a direct ask for a donation, then we know that the most important triggers are the precious memories that people have for a place and their desire to share that with generations to come. The nudge is the fragility of these special places, and we often talk about them as irreplaceable. We're diversifying our approach to individual giving and making our messaging more personal and more closely connected with our brand work to take our fundraising in new directions and to make it higher profile with our supporters. Well, as I'm approaching the end of my talk, I wanted to mention two very important enablers of our brand and supporter development work. The first is audience insight. When we talk about getting people to care about and act for a cause, we really need to make sure that we know what they currently think, feel and do. And as our purpose pushes us to engage with the nation, with everyone, we need to, do really, we need to be really well attuned to what our different audiences want and what they need and to be able to segment them effectively. And knowing our audiences is irrelevant if we don't have the supported technology to reach them with relevant, timely and personalised communications. So this is the second key enabler for us. We recognise the importance of continuing to invest in these two enabling areas so that we can convert the emotional interest in our cause from our brand work into engaging and relevant ways for people to get involved and contribute so that they get more out of their relationship with us and so do we and our cause. Well, it's been a pleasure sharing an overview with you this evening, and I shall look forward to our discussion shortly. Thank you very much. Right. Hello, I'm Liesl, and I'll talk to you a bit about fundraising in Oxford. Uh, my first top tip for you is never follow a marketing expert in the presentation. I'm having complete slide envy right now, so I hope you bear with me. With, you can tell I'm the fundraiser and she's the marketer. <laughs> Slightly more pedestrian slides to show you. Uh, but I thought we'd talk briefly uh, in the next 15 minutes or so about the Oxford Thinking Campaign and the work that we're doing here in Oxford with philanthropy. Um, as you heard in the introduction, the Oxford Thinking Campaign is, is one of the largest higher education campaigns in the world. It's by far the largest in Europe. Um, Cambridge is second, we like that. <laughs> um, Oxford 
we consider ourselves to be competing internationally, I mean, both for academic talent and for students and certainly in a fundraising arena. And when we look at our fundraising results, uh, globally, we would be in the top, say, 15 um, in terms of our annual results uh, with fundraising. And from an Oxford perspective, that's not good enough. So we're driving very hard to improve our fundraising results. Um, the campaign was launched in 2008. Our current goal is three billion. I say current because when the campaign was launched, the goal was one and a quarter billion pounds. It's a slightly odd number. Why would it be 1.25 billion? Um, I think the answer might have something to do with the fact that Cambridge had recently launched their 800th anniversary campaign and had a goal of raising a billion pounds for their 800th anniversary. Oxford always has to be slightly better than Cambridge in every way, and so our goal was one and a quarter billion. When I arrived in Oxford in 2011, uh, we'd already achieved the billion pound milestone and much faster than we thought we would and had a couple of years left in the, the planned campaign timeframe. And so the, the question was, what happens next? And so we spent a good fair amount of time thinking about that. And the decision was made that we should just keep going for it rather than planting the flag and saying, ta-da, we're done. Um, so our vice chancellor that autumn announced the new goal, which was three billion pounds. And we're currently at 2.6. So it's an umbrella campaign, all philanthropic gifts to any part of Oxford count. The colleges, the university, the Rhodes Trust, um, all of the academic departments. So we're measuring the philanthropic health of the university through the campaign rather than having a project-specific campaign. So it's comprehensive in nature. Uh, this gives you a little sense of where the money has come. Uh, so roughly evenly split between the university and the colleges. The Rhodes Trust has contributed a couple of hundred uh, million pounds. And we're nearly there. We figure we have about 18 months left with this campaign. And then we'll see if we finish there or whether, <laughs> whether my boss decides we're going to give us a, a yet higher target. In terms of where the money has gone, I thought it might be helpful just to explain a little bit about, uh, about how, the, how the money fleshes out. So roughly half of it is revenue money. So that's money in, money out. So it's for expendable scholarships. It's for uh, projects where we'll spend the money within a year or two of having received it. About a quarter of the money goes into endowment um, and about 20% uh, for capital. And these percentages have been roughly consistent for the life of the campaign. Um, so you can see that there's some pretty healthy sums there. And it's quite important for the university's capital program, for the long-term health of the university as it relates to endowment, and for the programs and education that we are able to deliver on a year-by-year -year basis. Philanthropy plays a very important role. Uh, that's a little dry and boring. I thought I might just cover a few of the highlights of the projects that we've worked on just to, to bring it a little bit more to life. Um, across the way, there's a big new building, the Blavatnik School of Government, which exists because of philanthropy to Oxford. Also the Oxford Martin School. This was the first big gift for the campaign was when Jim and Lillian Martin made the gift for the Martin School, which is an interdisciplinary uh, research enterprise at Oxford uh, that funds lots of fantastic uh, work on 21st century problems and, and things that have a real impact on the world. Uh, this is the interior of the new Weston Library, which is a major renovation of part of the Bodleian Libraries, which was funded almost entirely through philanthropy. Uh, studentships. We have a number of very large student programs. These are some of our Moritz Hyman scholars. So Mike Moritz and Harriet Hyman gave us a gift of 75 million pounds a few years ago to provide uh, bursaries and financial support for students from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, and we're charged with raising a further 150 million towards that program. So it's a very large program focused on access. Um, and academic posts. This is one of my, one of my friends who's also um, in a teaching fund post. So we had a big program a few years ago to endow a whole series of tutorial posts. We have 75 uh, newly endowed tutorial posts. We're in the midst of a big scheme right now uh, that's going to 
be providing endowment for a whole series of other academic posts. We think it'll be 50 statutory chairs that we endow before this thing is finished. So, so we think big, and we work on very big gift fundraising and lots of, lots of big projects, which we would hope are of benefit for Oxford, uh, well, really forever. So in the context of this talk, uh, if I can give you just a quick canter <laughs> through, through some of our philosophy of fundraising, I thought I'd focus specifically um, on branding and how do we focus our efforts and how do we make the pitch. So when we're talking about philanthropy at Oxford, what are the things that we're thinking about? And how do we present this amazing institution? Because it's incredibly diverse and there's excellence across the board. So how do you choose what to focus on? And how do we present those to our donors? I thought I'd start with the question of why people give. So rather than starting with us, think about our donors. And there's a guy called Jerry Panis, who is one of these fundraising gurus, and he's done quite a lot of work. And in his book, Asking, um, he's done a whole series of interviews with major donors about why they give. And the number one reason why these major donors have made a gift, and it's consistently number one, and number one by a large margin, is belief in the mission of the institution. So people will give money to you and to your organization because they're on the team. They believe in you. They think you're doing good things. They want to be part of what you're doing. So I think we need to keep that in mind. Tied for second and pretty far down are two other things, the financial stability of the institution and belief in and regard for a staff person. So not only do we need to think about how we communicate the mission, but we need to think about our people and we need to think about how we manage the money. And I think all of this makes sense. If you're thinking about making a large investment somewhere, are you gonna throw good money after bad? Are you gonna to give to a place that you don't have confidence that they'll manage the money well or that they'll spend it well? Are you gonna give some place that's populated full of a bunch of people you don't like? No. You know, so there's some psychology here and donor psychology that we need to be thinking about. The other thing I draw your attention to is one of uh, Jerry's ideas, which I, I love this phrase, donors give to the magic of an idea. That's a very poetic way of saying it, but I think it really captures it. People don't give because your organization has needs. Major donors give to bold, heroic, and audacious programs rather than needy institutions. And I think this is really critical. It's one of the sad facts of life that the organizations that most need the money don't get it. Um, if that were true, Harvard would not have an endowment of $40 billion. So when we're thinking about our fundraising case, we need to think about those bold and audacious and ambitious ideas. We need to think about the magic of the idea. We need to get people inspired and impassioned about what it is that we're trying to accomplish and give them confidence that we're going to be able to accomplish it, not go out with the begging bowl. And I think that's really difficult because I think when people think about philanthropy or asking other people for money, there's this idea that somehow you're kind of in the subservient position and that it's, it's I, I don't know, there's something unseemly about asking for money or, or that it's begging or we really need it and you should give to us because we really need the money. And I have to tell you that if you really need the money, the question in the donor's mind is, well, why do you really need the money? How, why have you not been managing your money properly? Why doesn't anyone else want to give to you? So as soon as you are needy, you're instilling doubt in the mind of your potential donor. 
which is not, I mean, you don't want to pretend like you don't have a need, but there's a way of couching it rather than we're really desperate and we're going to go down the tubes next week unless you help us out. <laughs> that's, that's a little dire. More, you need to be forward thinking and thinking about the big ideas and thinking about the inspirational message that we can put forward. Excellence is really important to donors. I mean, there is a reason why Harvard is the best fundraising university in the world and has the largest endowment. I mean, if we're looking at fairness, they definitely don't have the largest need. I think human beings are herd animals. We like to do what other people are doing. We like to do things that are socially acceptable, and we like to follow other people, okay? And we like to go for a sure bet rather than a risky one. So when we're talking about Oxford, and we're very, very fortunate and lucky here in Oxford because there's such tremendous excellence across the board, we're putting the excellence of the institution first. So we talk a lot about our medical school being the best medical school in the world, six years running. We talk about how the university last year was, was voted the, the top university in the world. We're really milking this until September because that's when the next <laughs> league table comes out. <laughs> and all bets are off at that point. Uh, you know, stable league tables do not sell newspapers. So we know that somebody's going to usurp us in September. But we're really milking this this year. And because we're in humanities, I give you this with the, this is a little blurry, but this is our, our, our web page. And the first line in our humanities fundraising web page is, Oxford is the world's leading university for humanities teaching and research. So we start with, this is an amazing place. We are doing great stuff. You should be a part of it. And that's kind of the key top line message that we have. People are incredibly important. And this is a little slide, a small selection of the people, the academics that I've been working with over the last couple of weeks on a whole series of fundraising projects across the university. I could easily fill this slide three times over. Uh, so some of you will see some of your friends up here. Um, fundraisers are facilitators. We're introducers. We're kind of match.com for the university. And we help bring people with wealth to amazing academics who are doing interesting things. And so the engagement of those academics is absolutely essential. And we want to put those academics in front of our donors so they get to know each other. Because going back to the donor motivation, people will give because they're inspired by and they're interested in the people who are doing the work. And so we want to put those people front and center. We do lots and lots of work with our academics. This does not mean that we're expecting people to make the ask. Some people would rather be set on fire than make an ask to a donor. Uh, but we do want our academics to talk about their interesting work, to talk about the cool, fascinating, world-changing, interesting stuff that they're doing. And then the likes of us, can help talk to the donor about, don't you want to be a part of that? And wouldn't it be lovely to support Professor so-and-so's activities? And this is what we need. You know? And so getting the people front and center is absolutely essential. You wouldn't buy a car that you've never driven, right? You know, no matter how great your car salesperson is, you probably wouldn't buy it unless you've given it a test drive. You wouldn't give to an organization, make a substantial investment in an organization if you've never met the people who are doing the work. You know, there's a, just a logic to this. So I think getting your people on side and getting them willing and interested and able to engage with donors and to engage with philanthropy is incredibly important. And then strong financial management is key. I've just spent the morning with the Oxford University Endowment Management folks at their annual meeting where we talked about how they, they manage our money. This is essential. Most of the people who are making very large investments in places like Oxford are pretty savvy about their own investments. And they want to make sure that if they're going to give us a gift, particularly if it's an endowment gift, how are you going to manage this? Are you good at this? Shouldn't I just hang on to the money and give you a little bit year on year? 
And so the performance of the endowment, the people who manage our money, the professionalism of our finance colleagues, absolutely essential. And that becomes part of the conversation as well. So it's inspiring ideas. It's absolute excellence. It's amazing, interesting people who you are going to love and people who are going to look after your money well. Okay, so that's kind of the core. And whether we're talking about the humanities faculty or the Ashmolean Museum or a big scholarship scheme or medical sciences or whatever it is around the university, I would say those themes kind of form the core of whatever pitch it is that we're making. So key takeaways for my few minutes here. Your fundraising success relies on a good story, always base it on success, even if that success is kind of preliminary success. We want to convey the story that we're going in the right direction and you can help us make it even better. A compelling case for the future. Okay? So if you invest, this is what we're going to be able to do. This is how you're going to change things. This is how you're going to change the world. Put your people at the front and assure your donors that your money is going to be handled, their money is going to be handled well and really put to good use. So those are, I realize this is a very high level kind of top line. I could bore you to tears about all of our fundraising strategies for how we raise all of the money. But in terms of just the packaging, those would be the key things I would say. The other thing that we say is that if you don't ask, you don't get. So the key thing I have for you is in order to have fundraising success, you have to ask and you have to be bold. And I think Oxford is good at both. So I think I'll stop there and then we'll answer some questions later. So thank you. have just a minute, I think, to rearrange some chairs. Do you yeah. want me to close? Shall I close okay, that? I'm, yeah. just, I'm not going to See, this is a carefully choreographed moment in the evening's proceedings. I introduce our esteemed chair for the In Conversation, uh, Pegram Harrison. As actual chairs are moved, there's some kind of meta thing going on here. Sorry, that was a dreadful joke. Um, anyway, so um, <clears throat> Dr. Pegram Harrison is fellow in entrepreneurship at uh, Oxford Said Business School. Uh, those of you who are regulars at the Moving Teaching Inspiring Lecture series will remember uh, Pegram from his star turn last week. Um, and Pegram's research in teaching concern entrepreneurship and leadership in an entrepreneurial context. Um, Pegram worked as a strategy consultant around the world for both public and private sector organisations, as well as for governments in both developed and developing countries. Uh, he's a founder member of the Pan-European Entrepreneurship Research Group. There we go. Um, so I'd like to invite our speakers up to the, the stage. Okay, good afternoon everybody from me. Welcome again. Uh, and welcome to our panel. Thank you very much to our speakers, Jackie and Liesl, and welcome particularly to Susan who's joining us. Um, we're going to uh, have a, a conversation up here for about half an hour, and then we'll share the conversation with you for another 15, 20 minutes after that. But if you have any burning questions as we go, please don't hesitate. Wave your hands, and, and we will include you. Now, um, I'm just going to kick off with uh, a, a, a comment or two, and then see see what sorts of answers um, our, our panels have. Um, we thought a lot in preparation for this about uh, the, the right kinds of questions to ask, and having listened now to our two presentations, I'm not sure we've got the most 
provocative questions to ask because um, a lot of what you're saying highlights the fact that the Trust and Oxford are um, very similar institutions in some way despite obvious, obvious differences. Um, and one thing that's really standing out is uh, this idea of people forward. Uh, people engaging with people, um, uh, aligning people's interests with the interests of the institutions. So I wonder if we could talk uh, particularly about how that emphasis has evolved to its present state, because I'm not sure it was always true. And it might help to explain how uh, supporting the cause in each of these institutions has become so much more successful recently. So how did the idea of putting people forward in the, in the, in the mission to raise support for these two institutions get to where it is today? I'll just begin with Lisa. about people. It's about people teaching other people. It's about people working on issues that are important to the world. And it's quite hard to think of not putting people first. I will say that one of the things that we've worked on quite hard, and I've been in this country for 13 years now, uh, developing a cultural philanthropy. And so when I arrived in 2004, there was a very different view about philanthropy specifically for higher education. I think it has lots to do with the funding model for higher education and, and the way things developed over the last several decades in this country versus elsewhere, particularly in the US. Um, so there was an element of persuasion to get academics and to get others to see that fundraising should be a part of university life and that it's an important part. I think that question has been answered well and truly at Oxford. I think most other universities, it's, it's still a pretty small enterprise. But I think we always put people first. And part of it is, is making the case for philanthropy and finding our academics who are willing to engage. So there's been, I think, an internal uh, exercise about getting people to realize that it's to their advantage to take part in this, this exercise. Um, but it's just, it's more effective, I would say. Well, this is so exciting because there are, there are similarities but differences between the institutions. And there are two things that I want to pick up on there. One is when I arrived at the National Trust, which was about mm, four and a half years ago, there was very little evidence at our properties and in our communications that we are a charity and that we need support. And uh, nervousness, I would say, amongst people. That, that my predecessor, for all sorts of good reasons at that time, had nurtured the dark arts of fundraising. So, so people weren't really engaged. So one of the things that we've done is develop an idea around think like a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. So when we launched our 10-year strategy, one of the key foundations there was to uh, ask the whole organization to start thinking like a fundraiser. And um, we got the language wrong at the beginning. I think we said think of something around be a fundraiser. And, and there was just such nervousness and such pushback, and then we had to go around and say, no, 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 we don't need you to be doing the fundraising, but we need you to realise that actually it's, it's that person's experience at a property visit, it's their experience as a member, it's their experience as, with their engagement with the volunteers that is ultimately going to make them make a gift. And so that Think Like Fundraiser was really good. And then there was another parallel that, that um, came to my mind when you were giving your presentation, which is when you were talking about, you had all the pictures of the academics and how your donors like to engage with people. 
and, and our, that is indeed our um, experience, but our major donor, our philanthropy fundraising is not anything like as mature as yours. However, what we have done just recently in our appeals, instead of sending out appeal literature about support this incredible landscapes, support this incredible building, we've just put it all around our forever for everyone and in the literature it's all about people so there's a little article on the ranger on the gardener on the you know the people who you are supporting or who you're engaging with to support this incredible organization shall i pass on to you yeah, yeah just done a few observations in that, that area i guess to move it a bit more broadly away from just the fundraising perspective i think I think for, for us at the National Trust, um, you know, we've always known that people are at the heart of what we do. Um, but I think the evolution that we've sort of seen um, with our new organisational strategy is a realisation that it's not just about having a, um, a linear relationship with people. So they come, they have a nice day out, they contribute to us by their monetary contribution from having that nice day out and they go home again. What we've, what we've um, absolutely recognised is that the cause that we stand for, so the preservation of the nation's beautiful special places, can't be achieved without us actually galvanising the hearts and minds of people, as well as entering into, if you like, a fair value exchange with them. So I think for us that sort of shift has been to say that not only are people important to us in terms of us making sure that our product, if you like, when they come and visit us, is good and good value for money and they have a nice day out. But actually to get into our thinking the importance of people really wanting to share our values, wanting to do something more, to advocate for our cause, wanting to um, give more of themselves but then also to get others to go with them, both at our properties more broadly, is actually the only way by which we're going to deliver our core purpose. Um, and so I think for us that sort of sense of putting supporters at the heart of what we do, not just because it's good business sense, if you like, because they will be happier and they'll contribute more to us, but putting our supporters at the heart of what we do because that's the way by which they will share our values and they'll take those values into their lives and they'll advocate for us and they'll take our cause, if you like, more broadly um, into places that we can't reach, whether that's with other audiences that we can't talk to, whether that's communities that we can't reach, um, or whether that's just properties we have no connection with, places we have no connection with. So it's sort of intrinsic to our, our broader purpose, I think, to be really focused on engaging individuals in the broadest possible way. Um, so that brings up another really important topic, which is how do you uh, engage with people that are not currently your supporters? And so engaging with new and different uh, supporters, either types of supporters or individual supporters. And Perhaps I could begin, Susan, with you. What, what thoughts uh, or <laughs> suggestions or uh, secrets do you have to share about how you're engaging with new and different types of supporters? Oh, the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of thoughts come to mind there, um, because we, we have been looking at that. And um, interestingly, just as an example, we had a, a, a recent campaign for a acquisition of some land in Cornwall and we uh, we thought uh, it, it, you know we can do a, um, a campaign to our an appeal to our members maybe we can do it by postcode appeal to the people who live locally but 
actually we chose to do something different. We did some crowdfunding, but we've not really done before. So we've not, we've, we've had regular appeals through the four appeals that go out to our membership to the same donors each year. So if you give a gift one year to the Lake District, then you'll suddenly find that the next year or three months later you'll be asked for a gift for Wickham Fen in Cambridge and you think, what's that all about? So now we're just thinking about how we um, engage people on that, that sort of lower level differently through social media perhaps through, um, and I'll come back to the Cornwall one, through, um, uh, through, through developing other products. So with Cornwall, we did this crowd um, campaign, relatively modest, but we, half of the donors, we have no relationship with. They're not on our database at all. So that was quite extraordinary to us. Um, and what we are doing is developing a community fundraising product and a commemorative giving product, which we haven't really had before. So we fundraise at properties, but not really more widely. And that community fundraising product is also recognising that we're getting people come to us saying they want to you know, run the London Marathon, do a sponsored swim, and we just want to develop something where we say, here, it's in a box, go away and do it, this is how you do it. And the commemorative giving, we've never done before. So how many people want to uh, leave a gift in memory of somebody and have a bench on a National Trust property? Please, no more benches. <laughs> Just, uh, or plant snowdrops or, or you know, plant a woodland or something. Um, but actually now we're doing that, we're developing a product for online. So you can easily go and make a gift in memory of somebody or just as a birthday present to somebody. And you can choose a number of ways in which you might like that to be recognised. And it can be recognised at the property, but in a really easy way. And we know that commemorative donors eventually move into becoming legacy pledges. And it's the legacy income that we want. So it's just looking at completely different audiences for us. Perspective. Sure, so I think um, it might be helpful to make a distinction between the sort of fundraising that happens in Oxford and the sort of happens yes. in National Trust, because it's actually rather different. Um, at Oxford, we're very, very focused on major donor fundraising, by which we mean you know, six figures or more. And of the money that we've raised for the campaign for the university, um, something like 95% of it has come from about 1% of our donors. Um, so there are 35 donors who've given over half the sums. So we were talking about very large gifts, very substantial investments from a small number of people. So we're very heavily weighted towards the big gift fundraising, whereas I think National Trust is more heavily weighted towards uh, mass market and, and smaller kind of volume giving. And you know you do have major, major donor programs, but I think we're probably sort of exactly opposite in terms of the weighting that we have. Yes, so that informs my response to your question. So how do we open ourselves up to new markets or find new donors? Um, referrals are huge for us. So everyone we talk to, one of the questions we ask is who else should we be talking to? So if, if this project isn't appealing to you personally, do you have suggestions for us about who else we might want, might want to talk to? Our alumni are tremendous door openers for us. Um, and I suppose this links to the brand proposition as well, because Oxford, I've heard it described as one of the educational super brands. And we're incredibly lucky and incredibly fortunate. I can go anywhere in the world, and people will have heard of the University of Oxford. They might not know very much about us, they've probably seen a picture, and they know that we are one of the best, well, this year, the best university in the world. That's a tremendous asset. So if I'm in Beijing, 
and I want to speak to a billionaire in Beijing, we can usually reach out and say, the University of Oxford would like to come see you, and more often than not, they'll take a meeting, because it's Oxford. And I think there's probably maybe one other university in the country that might have that advantage, but they sort of get confused with the city in Massachusetts sometimes. <laughs> so we're really in a strong position there, and we really leverage that. And so there's quite a, a fair amount of speculative work that we do. Um, in terms of opening up new markets, we've been focused very heavily on the non-UK, non-US market. So in terms of our money, about half of it comes from the UK, about a quarter comes from the US, and we're working on increasing the rest of the pie. So we're spending a lot of time in Asia, we're spending time in continental Europe where we've been really underpowered, um, spending some time in Latin America. So if you look at where are the world's billionaires, that's where we want to be. And then we start with wealth and then think about how can we get the introduction. And one of the amazing things about Oxford is our incredible network. And so if I think that there's Joe Rich guy over there in Sao Paulo, I'd quite like to have a chat with him because given other things that he's been interested in, we think he's going to be interested in medical sciences or humanities or whatever. Then we think about how can we get the introduction. And more often than not, we can find someone who can help us. So we're all about kind of interpersonal linkages and networking. And that leads to a question I'd like to ask uh, Jackie, which is about the brand of the National Trust. So it's a very British brand. And it often comes across as perhaps a very a, a prosperous brand, a wealthy brand. So the challenge of soliciting um, support, particularly financial support, for something that's perceived as a, a wealthy brand, you touched on a bit in your, in your talk. Perhaps you could expand a bit on, on that, beyond the theme of just that people are attracted to giving to uh, an institution that will make the most of their, their gift and get the best return on it, both in terms of financial and other other metrics. So, so what what else can we say about how to encourage people to give to a, an already wealthy brand? Okay. Um, yeah. So, so as you you've rightly highlighted, I mean that's really at the heart of um, of our brand work. Yes, to some degree, to get support through fundraising and donations, but more broadly, really, just to get that perception shift that. We, we know we need in order to get people advocating for our cause and doing more things, participating in an active way in things that will help further the preservation of, of special places and drive more enjoyment for people out of them. So um, uh, for us, you know, the the, the, um, uh, the model, you know, the kind of the, the uh, view of us that we're a wealthy organisation, we know it's driven by our assets, but we don't own those assets as in our assets, we own them on behalf of the nation. So, you know, our sense that these are your assets, they're not our assets. We are custodians of them, we're facilitating people enjoying them and wanting to come and experience them, experience them because you can't care for what you haven't experienced. And if you don't care for something, you're not going to want to contribute to it and try and protect it. So um, our brand work is very much about that, that sense of actually all our conservation work is funded by contributions from others whether that's through people's time, whether it's through their money, that money comes to us not just from people who's <coughs> giving us a donation. Every time you visit, you're essentially contributing into our work, whether you buy a cup of coffee, you're contributing into our work. And that work is all about providing that virtual circle back of these special places enhanced, made better, made more enjoyable, made more valuable to people. And you're contributing to that, and therefore contributing to the um, enjoyment factor for others as well. So, I guess for us that, that sort of um, label of being wealthy 
I think we're, it's quite, uh, it's quite a sort of um, uh, a long journey, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's being um, clear to the path that actually that is not a wealth that is in any way, a, you know, for us to exploit, it's for us to essentially help maintain, and that we need people to help us do that. So, so I think we're reasonably confident that um, by encouraging more and more visibility of the fact that we need that people are helping us, thanking them for helping us, thanking them for their contribution of their membership, what it's doing for us, um, what it's delivering against our conservation work, that's the that's the sort of unlocker, if you like, to getting that shift of emphasis. Um, and we don't, I don't think we see that as a particular block. I don't think that it's the biggest reason, it's the biggest problem we have. Bigger, one of the bigger problems we have is just the nature of people's established relationship with us from a supporter point of view. Um, so I'm just not thinking that that would be part of their relationship with us. So that's the sort of journey that we're on. I can just add something Please. to that. So the, the, um, the, the sort of mass marketing um, fundraising that we do is, is actually t tiny compared with the legacy mm -hmm. income. So that, that, and, and I think the legacy goes back to your first question, which is that we sometimes know who our legacy pledges are, but very often we don't. And, and they can leave us significant sums, multi-million. I mean, that's where we get our multi-million um, gifts. And um, so there are people whose experience, whose, whose understanding of the brand, confidence in the organisation, confidence is a big one, and Lisa mentioned this earlier. So why would you leave 1.5 million in your will to an organisation where you're not confident, which is exactly the question that Lisa posed earlier. So I think then our brand and all the work that, that Jeff and I do in terms of um, that marketing and getting you to feel confident about it, but your experience, your experience at properties is, is what's going to make you leave a legacy. And we know we raised, um, we, we reached an overshot our target of 60 million this last year um, from people who leave us legacies. Well, um, you're so good at providing me with cues to my next question. So this, my next question was about the speed at which both institutions have been um, garnering increased support. So uh, you both reached targets far earlier than even you expected. And I think that's got to be symptomatic of not just um, the, the, the proper management of these processes, but uh, also the, the way you're engaging with new uh, supporters and the way we're continuing to get engaged with current supporters. But are there perhaps any other ideas about what's powering that? Maybe external factors that might obtain um, uh, for, for now but not always, or um, uh, other, other factors that we haven't yet mentioned that might explain the, the, the really healthy pace of uh, financial support for both institutions. Any ideas, Lisa? <laughs> Our office was founded in 1988, I think. So, that makes us about to turn 30. Relatively young, um, when we're compared to our North American counterparts about how long we've been fundraising. Honestly, I think the acceleration is because we've been just putting a lot of willy into it <laughs> for a few years. Um, and we've been playing catch up because we complete compete globally for our students, we compete globally for our academic staff, and when you look at the sums of money that are being contributed to um, U.S. universities, it's staggering and we're losing, and we have to try really hard. So I think, I wouldn't say that there are a lot of external factors. I think there's a, a broader 
national awareness about the importance of national universities, and more and more universities are, are getting switched onto it. There are fewer North American airports like me and more homegrown talent are really growing the sector of, of philanthropy for universities. Um, but honestly, I think the growth is due to effort. And we've been able to accelerate, I think, because Oxford was punching well below its weight for a very long time. And we've not yet exhausted our potential donor pool, and we've not yet reached the ceiling of what we're capable of. So when you look at a typical campaign, you'll see a big burst of activity at the beginning when everyone's enthusiastic about it. Then as you kind of go through the middle stages of the campaign, everyone gets exhausted, they're sick of hearing about it, nobody wants to see a fundraiser, it's really a slog. And then you have this artificial end date, and everyone gets anxious about the fact that you might not raise all the money you said you're going to raise before the end, and there's this big kind of swoop up to the end. So you see a very typical pattern of campaigns, and we have that plateau stage is, is very typical. We've yet to have the plateau at Oxford. It's just an acceleration and acceleration and acceleration. It's a very interesting graph. So I think there's a lot of headroom for us before that acceleration stops. I'd like to take credit for my staff being just the world's most amazing fundraisers, but I think there's an element of not having tapped into the full potential of our pool for a long time, and we're just starting to leverage that now. And just summarizing that is because we're asking. Mm -hmm. so, and, and that, I, I, I would argue that actually number one reason for people giving is because they're asked. Uh, and, and actually we had an interesting experience in this in terms of our legacy fundraising. So when I arrived at the National Trust, we were raising about 45 million a year through legacy. So I said, could we raise 50, could we raise 60 million a year, could we raise 100 million a year? And we did a big piece of analyzing our figures. And we found we sit seventh in the charity league table for legacy giving. Uh, and we have a but we have a high average value of legacies because people leave us properties. We were sitting 17th in terms of notifications. So the number of legacies that are left beaten by the Dogs Trust. And, but what we, what we hadn't observed was that, that that notification number was going down. So we went back to have a look and see why this was happening. And in 2004, it turned out that for whatever reason at the time, we reduced our spend on legacy development. So marketing and letting people know we're a charity, we need your support, you can leave a legacy. Seven years later, so the, the legacy, um, the, the investment in legacy um, development goes like that, it goes, starts going down. Seven years later, our notifications were doing exactly the same slide than on the graph. It was quite a story, which made it very easy for me to make a business case to ramp up the um, spend on legacy development. And we're already beginning to see that, although it's not seven years since I did that. Because some of them come in earlier, seven years is an average. To ask. Well, so one, uh, th this brings up the brand again, and um, uh, th th this contrast between uh, magic and, and need uh, is well represented by your case. So, so to, to, you've got to keep the, the magic so that the ask can, can be bolder, but you also have to represent the, uh, the cause as, as, as a responsibility. And there's something about the way the brand works that allows you to bring that magic and that need very close together, like the, the, the 23,000 um, scones, is, um, is a perfect encapsulation of how you, of how you manage to do that. Um, perhaps another bit of detail about how you've managed to get support for unglamorous things, because that's obviously a large, a large part of the success. Um, what do you have to say about that? Nothing unglamorous about Scone. <laughs> <laughs> we sell an awful lot of them, but they're, they're 
very, uh, very valuable tools. Um, so yeah, so it's actually, so we're going to pick up a little bit on the sort of, um, you know, actually where our biggest growth is coming from is the membership at the end of the day. You know, that's what's driving us forward and that's about more people, different people, connecting with what we offer because we've been diversifying that offer. Um, our, um, so our opportunity really, I think we're saying, you know, how to get people to um, come in for the non-glamorous things, you know, the, the, the more audiences that we have, the more there will be something different that appeals to those different audiences. Um, we aren't, um, you know, we aren't in, in the position of just wanting to get, you know, three or four big projects supported. Everything that happens on our properties in some way needs funding because we don't get any government money, you know, when we get specific grants. So I think it's a little bit for us that, you know, the diversity of our member base actually lends itself to those very um, everyday type of fundraising opportunities and messages. We use the Scott example, but you know, people can walk around a property and see um, see something that's, um, uh, that they particularly love. They love gardens, and there's you know, small ways by which they can help and contribute to the work we're doing in the garden. Some of that might be monetary, some of that might be actually helping with the planting that's going on in the garden at that point in time. And we're increasingly trying to um, you know, encourage our supporters to actually do things to support our conservation work when they're visiting us. So, um, I guess to answer your question about you know, how to get people to help with those small things, it's actually make, make it part of an enjoyable experience for them. Don't always ask them for money because you know, at the end of the day, charitable purpose can be supported in a whole variety of different ways. Um, people enjoy being able to take part in something, participation, having an active participation in something takes them further into feeling connected with that experience that they've had, that day out that they've had. So, um, so yeah, so I suppose for us, because we've got, we're a broad church, we've got large volumes of people visiting us, those small ways of helping them feel like they're doing something that can contribute to the beautiful places that they're looking at, in a small way, um, is, is, is easy for us, if you like, so quite, quite intrinsic, I think. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Now let's get some active participation um, from others in the room. If there are any questions from those of you in the audience, um, we've got another mic, and we can send one right, right there, Charles. Right there. I just asked the question. Can you just tell us who you are? I'm Adrian Hopkins. I'm the university's senior quality advisor, and that's going to inform my question to you, which is. Um, Talk, thinking about engaging new, new audiences and bringing new people on board, what do you think the role of promoting equality and diversity in our respectable organisations is? And do you think that's something that we do not have that we could in fact? I think it's very important. <laughs> of course, I would say that, uh, especially to you. But I, I would say it in general. Um, we think about those things across the board with our work. So if we're thinking about our scholarship programs, you know, we want to make sure that we are enabling students from all backgrounds, anyone who has the brain to be successful at Oxford ought to be able to come here. And that um, informs our winding participation efforts here in the UK. Um, it informs uh, the scholarships we're seeking for graduate students elsewhere. We're in the middle of a big pitch right now for, you know, fingers crossed, we hope to get a connection um, for a very large uh, graduate scholarship program for African students. And, and for students from areas where they wouldn't necessarily be able to pay the overseas fees to come to Oxford. Uh, we've just submitted a, a very large multi-million pound uh, ask for a women's uh, a gender empowerment program so that we can 
uh, use philanthropy to help work on the, some of the gender imbalance issues that we have in Oxford, specifically as it relates to our academic staff. So I wouldn't say that it's everyone's cup of tea, and our donor population definitely skews male, like in a pretty significant way. I mean, that has to do with capitalism and the people who have money in the world at this point in time. Um, but that's definitely something that we think quite a lot about. I really see philanthropy as a lever or a tool to help the university achieve its aims. And that's across the board. And so if we can use philanthropy in that arena or any other, then we want to think about how it would be helpful. So um, for us, I mean, diversity is absolutely at the heart of what we do. Um, you know, we look back to our founding purpose. It was essentially to ensure that there was access to the places for everybody, recognising the, you know, the, the human benefits that they deliver. Um, so are we doing enough? No, you know, we're not doing enough. Um, we are, we're just commissioning actually a new piece of audience insight. We're essentially looking to segment the whole population um, in, in ways which would enable us to really understand how we could contribute more to the lives of groups at the moment that we're not touching. Um, because I think we recognise that it's, it's kind of the classic journey for an organisation, I suppose. We've come through a period of time where we've cemented our financial security, for want of a better word, you know, we are getting to that five million member point. Um, that enables us to um, deliver against our conservation priorities. Um, we have some backlog in that area, we still need to push hard, you know, it's not a done deal, but we're sort of at a threshold point where we can say, rather than going for the audiences that are low hanging fruit for us, that we can see that return on investment on, actually we can take stock and say, delivering that for everyone agenda may require us to actually put some investment in that will not pay back to us in terms of any sort of contribution back into funds that we can use for conservation, but it's part of delivering that other part of our purpose, which is access for everyone. Um, so we're just, we're just, I think, at a good tipping point, if you like, where it's always been important to us that we're delivering something back to people. Have we been as focused on, is that reaching everyone as we could have been in the past? No. But is it part of our mission? Absolutely. And have we now got, if you like, some of that um, bandwidth because we've reached a critical mass that we can go after it? Absolutely. And it's absolutely part of our ambitions moving forward. Um, other questions from the floor? Let's see. We have, oh goodness, we have many to choose from. Charles, you pick. There are two right over here. Ladies
or low-level giving, small donations, or if it's legacies. Um, the more we can create that climate of giving, the better. So, um, but I think you do raise something interesting there, which is that in our strategy now for the next 10 years, to grow, for, inch, for instance, some of our um, grant making, then we need to be working in partnership, in, in our case, with some of the land doctors and nature, with, um, with uh, the environment agency, with river authorities, and with, with a whole host of, of other institutions. So um, how do we do that? How do we work together? In that case, we are fundraising just for what we're doing. There's <coughs> an, an interesting example of where we're working with the Canal and River Trust um, at the Roundhouse in Birmingham. So if we go out and fundraise together for the Roundhouse in Birmingham, who gets the cash? Who manages it? Who gets what values are you doing that fundraising? So there's, quite, there's a bit of sort of housekeeping to be sorted out. I think there's, you need to have a very clear sense of, um, uh, you know, when Jackie was talking about people give to values, make sure that your values are aligned. Um, and, and, and if we can, you know, think through that and set up that, that the sort of parameters for <coughs> those principles, I think it would be interesting. We'd certainly be happy to explore that. Uh, Oxford has a number of joint fundraising initiatives uh, with a whole series of charities. Most of them are African medical sciences, I think what would be surprising, there are a whole host of um, charities that fund disease-specific research, and, and so we have um, some quite collaborative fundraising efforts on a number of fronts there, so it wouldn't be unprecedented, and we'd be quite happy to, to see what might do with that. You heard it here first. Another <laughs> <laughs> <No> question? <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell how on the same wavelength as my I was going to ask, with two educate, two super brands in the room, and usually you telling us to ask big and pitch big. You, this is the opportunity to endow our collaboration for the next hundred years, surely. <laughs> um, but I, I, if the serious aspect in that is, is comparing the strategic aims of Oxford and the National Trust, we seem to be actually quite aligned. We're interested in you know, world-leading research that connects with as wide an audience as possible. You're about move, teach and inspire. And there, there seems to be a synergy there that's, that's very exciting. I suppose to make the question slightly different to Alice's, which is what kind of role can we both play as sector leaders in shifting mentalities amongst our colleagues in the heritage sector who often present that begging bowl? You see it so often in local museums that it's a begging bowl. Please come and help us. There's no vision, there's no strategy. What's, what's our role in sort of being best in class? Well, we do quite a lot of work in terms of uh, volunteering and training other fundraisers. Our museums are part of a partnership uh, with a lot of, uh, of other museums in terms of um, helping improve the quality of fundraising across the board. I know my staff is very involved with a lot of uh, volunteerism. I mean, we're, we're quite relaxed about sharing our expertise because I genuinely don't feel that we're in competition with really anyone else. Um, Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for the most part, our donor pools don't overlap. And someone who's going to make a gift to Oxford, it wouldn't be at the expense of the National Trust. It would be because they're quite keen on something that we're doing. I, I, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. And I think oftentimes people worry that it is a zero-sum game. And so I think part of what we can do is help share expertise and and just help improve practice, because I think 
a stronger cultural philanthropy across the board to heritage organizations, to local charities, to other higher education institutions is good for all of us. More people thinking about philanthropy is, is good for the world, and we'd really like to see that. Sorry, so I mean, I guess the, the, the piece we I think I think there are huge opportunities from the partnership that don't necessarily um, mean that we have to try and make, get money together. Do you know what I mean? I think um, you know an interesting topic and area would be that diversity of gender. Actually, you know how much commitment is there on both parties to actually take what we have, which are some amazing assets in terms of our stories, our research, our ability to create really compelling thought-provoking experiences for people, how you know, how do we take that out in a way that delivers more and more value to more and more groups within within the nation. Um, those that sort of seems to me to be a more inspiring perhaps ambition for the partnership rather than could we go and raise a hundred million pounds together and endow something. So um, I do obviously appreciate where the uh, where the comments coming from and the, the nature of the topics that we're discussing today, but I think um, I think we have some wonderful things that we can achieve and um, you know, that's I guess where we're focusing to so how do we get the assets that we will to some degree take for granted because we live and breathe them through our day jobs every day. How do you get those to people who have no way of getting them, have no existing connection with them? How do you add value to those people's lives through through what we have and what we can do together? So that would be my ambition, if you like, in terms of what the partnership could focus on. made me realise that um, by necessity our respective fundraising is not around a begging bowl because we're both uh, perceived to be rich institutions. <coughs> so it, in a way we've learned we've that and, and, and I always say that um, fundraising is about um, engaging somebody to the point that they say I'd really like to you don't have to ask them, they'll give it to you if you're engaging with them. Um, so then I suppose it's back to what Lisa was saying, how much can we do to help other um, charities or other organisations um, think like that? And, and certainly we're engaged in mentoring and, um, and uh, <coughs> you know, engaged in, in learning programmes with other um, charities to the extent that we can be. Um, Hi, I'm a development assistant here for Royal College at St. Athens. Um, my question was, um, how much of a challenge do you view the new data protection rules? That <laughs> 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 um, I guess I know a bit about the university, but the National Trust will tell me what your ideas are. Do you want me to answer that first, then? <laughs> 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 yes. Well, it's certainly a challenge. Uh, it's certainly a challenge, and in my dark moments, I just think uh, I, I, I'm probably more anxious about um, the fact that uh, the media are sort of uh, circling around us like a bunch of sharks, waiting to pounce. And you know, what better story to make than Oxford University or, or the National Trust are doing terrible things, um, and we're not. Um, I, I think in my brighter moments, though, I, I think what it's going to do is really help us to put the supporter at the heart of what we do. So think about this from the supporter's point of view. Um, how, how do they want to, to be, us to engage with them? How, and, and have we invited them? Have we asked them properly? Um, and if we really do that, then we'll win through. 
Uh, we know that by changing our permission statement and asking for explicit, unambiguous um, consent, we will reduce the number of people that we um, can talk to through direct mail and, and email um, down to about 15%, possibly 20%. The RNLI, for fundraising, for fundraising, the RNLI are up at 40%. Um, but we, we uh, nevertheless, we know that those are people that want to hear from us about fundraising. So, so, so it's not that we'll reduce the income by 20% or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think we just, we need to be confident about our brand and about the fact that people do want to support us. We need all the more, and this is where in a sense we're quite lucky because we have our properties, we need all the more to be um, engaging with people at our properties because we can do it there. If we can do it less through that through that direct messaging, um, I think uh, I mean we, we, it's going to be right across the board. Uh, so so a year ago, this was seen as the fundraising problem within the National Trust, and we were saying no 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 no, you guys, we're, we're all going to be part of this. And and now we've embraced it right across the National Trust. But I think um, it's it, we 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 just need to be confident in our in our messaging. Think broadly about it. Use all of our messaging channels. Um, and and be uh, and be grateful that this is an opportunity to really, really think about um, about our supporters and what's best for them. Mm. I think I'm in a minority in our business in that I'm pretty sanguine about the general data protection regulation. Um, is it a pain? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Would I rather not spend hours every week thinking about it? Absolutely. Um, I think what's happening is there's a fundamental cultural change in our business, and a lot of things that we've taken completely for granted for a long time are changing. And this idea that it's been opt-out. So I will contact you and tell you, let me know that you don't want me to, and then I'll stop. Is it's just not going to fly any longer. And and that ship has sailed. <laughs> and we can stand on the shore and shake our fist at the tide, but it's going to come in anyway. You know. So I think we just need to adapt. I don't think that this is going to be a crisis in our fundraising. I don't think it's going to mean that we can't ever talk to our supporters again. Um, I don't think it's going to mean that there's a massive opportunity cost of all those people that we can't reach that we would have liked to have reached. I think we are going to be able to get to the people who we want to, to engage with. I just think we're going to have to be more clever about it. And I think that we're moving to an era where it's going to be opt-in rather than opt-out, and that is okay. And we're going to figure it out. Because we're going to University of Oxford. We're pretty smart around here. <laughs> Um, and I think that we're going to have to be more thoughtful about how we collect our data, why we collect it, how we're planning on using it, and have a better understanding of when we have to use opt-in and specific, explicit consent, and when we're going to be able to rely on legitimate interest. I'm a little hedgy here because the guidance from the Information Commissioner's Office and from the fundraising regular has not yet been issued. So I think there's an element of let's just hold fire for the moment, let's not freak out. There's a lot of freaking out that's happening, but let's not freak out because it's going to be okay and we're going to be able to adapt. And I think we're going to have to change our practice. We already know that. So let's just deal with the fact we're going to have to change our practice and really make the best of it. I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced we're going to make a success of this completely. Now, on that positive note, even though I know there are more hands, if, if we have a very quick question, we could take one last question. There was one at the back. Would you like to ask it? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. 
just a little bit <laughs> on data, if I take a good I wondered if you could um, uh, talk a little bit about the role of um, the leader of your institutions in helping to achieve your goal, particularly fundraising, thinking about transformative leading and how you engage with that. Um, we all get a mindful thing they've got on their plates that they also do. I think having a leader who's willing to engage with fundraising is absolutely essential. If someone's going to make a transformative investment in your organization, they're going to want to have that CEO to CEO level conversation. And so if the leader of your organization is unwilling to engage, then just honestly forget about <laughs> the, the major good fundraising because it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean that that person needs to be a complete convert, but they have to be willing to engage with donors, um, to speak to them, to be part of the process, to let the donors get to know, the potential donors get to know them. Because it's part of a donor's due diligence is meeting the people who are leading. I mean, we've talked earlier about um, they give to organizations where they have you know, strong leadership. I almost said strong and stable leadership. That is not what I meant. Um, but having a leader who's willing to engage on that level is absolutely essential. So yeah, it's, it's a key element of bigger fundraising. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. Um, and uh, interestingly, at the National Trust, the, uh, the, the Board of Trustees has never been brought together um, either for, uh, with a thought for how much they might give or how, how they might, what sort of contacts they might have. However, um, my view is that everybody knows people, right down to our gardeners and rangers actually, know people who might um, give, who might like to support, and never underestimate either the power of somebody leaving a legacy. Um, both Helen Ghosh and our chair, Tim Parker, uh, I, early on when they first joined, I've had that conversation with them where they've said, new to fundraising, not really done this, but um, I'm not correct. So we've, in both cases, we've been on a lovely journey together, and they are both fabulous um, supporters. And Helen Ghosh is, is the, the best um, you know, CEO, Director General that I could possibly wish to take out to a meeting and engage with somebody and then um, persuade them that um, just by who she is and how she conducts herself and, and how clever she is about it, that we that they can feel confident about making a gift to us. We have come to uh, a suitable stopping point. Uh, I would like to make two very quick uh, invitations. One is to the next and I believe last of our series, which is coming up on a a date soon, so check the website and all the supporting information is there. The 1st of June, the 1st of June, which will culminate this uh, unique and marvelous partnership between the Trust and the University. Um, also, uh, more immediately, to continue the conversation with any questions you might have for our panelists and each other at a, at a, at a glass of wine, which is, uh, if you follow the crowd, very nearby in, a, in, a, in the neighboring building. For your interest, for your presence, and for your questions, uh, thank you very much. And on behalf of um, the uh, whole partnership that we are representing today, you've been moving, teaching, and inspiring. Thank you very much, Jen and Susan, and Lisa.